stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Um, Welcome to One Hour at a Time. Our topic today is addiction recovery in nurses, which is a topic that's near and dear to my heart as I've been a registered nurse for a number of years. And I'm very happy to introduce to you our guest, Paula Davies-Semenka, who is a registered nurse and has a master's degree. She obtained her baccalaureate degree from nursing from Adelphi University and her master's degree in psychiatric mental health nursing from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Her career has spanned over three decades, with the first 10 years spent in medical, surgical, and critical care nursing. With over 20 years' experience in addiction and psychiatric nursing, she is a recognized expert who presents nationally on the subject of addiction recovery in nurses. Author of Unbecoming a Nurse and From Unbecoming a Nurse to Overcoming Addiction, she served on the Board of Trustees for the International Nurses Society and Addictions Foundation for Addiction Nursing. Welcome, Paula, to our show. Oh, thank you for having me, Mary. I'm just uh, thrilled to have you. This is a a topic that I think is um, near and dear to my heart, as I as I mentioned, I'm also a registered nurse, and um, I see the struggle within our profession when we have um, an impaired professional um, who the the secrecy around um, not wanting to expose the person because there's kind of a, a protective shell sometimes that goes around. Um, our coworkers, and then once somebody gets exposed, everybody just wants to walk away from that, and 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 like there's no second chance. And um, I just I think it's great that you're out there talking about um, addiction recovery in nurses, because I think for a long time nurses have been kind of on the bottom rung of the ladder when it comes to um, getting getting help and and feeling like it's okay to 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 say that they have a problem and get help. Yes, for, uh, certainly, you know, coming into the profession in the 1970s, Mary, it was a very different environment than it is today in some respects because uh, it was the standard that hospitals would tend to just, um, you know, offer a benign referral in exchange for a nurse's resignation if they were to find that there was a problem with drugs or alcohol while they were at work. And uh, today, although that might happen, uh, it is not the standard. There is an awful lot of efforts being made and an awful lot of facilities go to uh, great lengths to educate. Uh, Certainly there could be more education, but some are beginning to educate uh, the people on staff regarding the issue, how to recognize it, what to do, 
uh, and, and many of them do actually give the professional an opportunity to get the help they need, and when they're in a stable recovery, uh, return to work. Well, we, we know that um, professionals like doctors, nurses, airplane pilots have a great rate of recovery because they're monitored for, um, closely for a long period of time after they receive treatment. And we know that monitoring improves everybody's chance of recovery. It would be wonderful if we could adopt in the general population that's seeking treatment for addictions, Mary, it would be wonderful if we could adopt some of the principles that come into place when uh, a nurse is in monitoring or a physician. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, although I am a great proponent of uh, the rights that we have via our Constitution in the U.S., the fact is that when there is a license at stake, whether it's a driver's license, but certainly when it's a professional license that is giving you your income to have that car that you have a license to drive, when that is held to in, you know, off the side and you're told that you cannot practice your profession until you do get help and un unless you meet certain requirements going forward for a number of years in succession, uh, that does add a lot of leverage to that individual doing exactly what is recommended by the treatment provider. And as we know with any medical condition, including addiction, when there's a follow-through with the recommendations, you know, getting to meetings, you know, abstaining from all alcohol and other drugs that are mood-altering, the, the outcome is much, much better. You're absolutely right. Monitoring is a big, big piece of what is helpful for addiction recovery. I think um, one of the challenges, at least um, having gone to nursing school in the 70s myself, was that, you know, um, using alcohol or, or marijuana uh, to help deal with the stress. When I was going to nursing school, we were working shifts, we were taking charge, we were 18, 19 years old, and there was a tremendous amount of responsibility and stress. And I can remember going off duty in my student nurse's uniform with my friends to the bar across the street, and all the old men there would buy us pitchers of beer, you know, and we could drink all night and never have to pay for it. And, and I think that there was a kind of a, an unwritten law that this is, this is what you do to unwind. Yes, and, and you know, the, the brain is very, you know, the brain is very smart. It knows what works, and certainly alcohol and anything else that's an anesthetic or a mood-altering substance does uh, have the potential to reduce stress short-term. It creates other problems, certainly. But, um, you know, people know what relieves their stress and what relieves depression. There are so many uh, individuals who have said, you know, uh, Vicodin uh, was a better antidepressant for them than Prozac. And uh, it, it, it is something that societally or culturally within the profession, uh, you know, yes, doctors and nurses would call them liver rounds, going to the bar and, uh, you know, having uh, drinks after work. It definitely is something that is... Um, less of a practice, I think, today only because a lot of individuals have seen the downside of uh, using a substance as that coping mechanism. 
Well, I think I think you're right. I also think we're very conflicted as a society about our use of alcohol and other um, mood-altering substances because if we look at this from a medical perspective, I know there are nursing homes that have happy hours, and their you know their uh, residents are having you know happy hours, and then two hours later are falling and fracturing their hip because yes. they're mixing with all the meds they're on. You know, so I think we're very conflicted as a profession as well. Too. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think some of what muddies the waters with the conflict. Uh, in addition to what you mentioned, culturally and societally, Mary, is the fact that we also have, um, you know, a situation today that was not in existence when I grew up, you know, 50 years ago, that we're really being offered by commercial advertising a pill that will, it will, there's one that will suit every discomfort you possibly have. And I think that also enters into this area that you so aptly called conflict, that, um, you know, people do begin to get the message from advertising that they've been saturated with for decades that there is a pill that will, or something you can take into you from outside of you, whether it's, you know, purchasing power or whatever, that will allow you to handle stress, feel better, look better. Uh, Whatever you want, you can get it through, you know, a pill. It's um, it, it creates a lot of challenges, I think, because um, I think newer people who are who are younger in certainly in the nursing profession, they're hearing that as well. When when I was 100 years ago going to nursing school, you know, medication was kind of like something you offered, but you tried, you positioned somebody, you changed, you got them up and had them walk around. I mean, there were other forms of um, interventions that you did before you gave somebody medication. It wasn't just the knee-jerk reaction to that, to discomfort. Ab- absolutely. I mean, I, I go back to that philosophy of, you know, we were told rest, ice, compression, elevation if you have an injury. I, I don't hear that much any longer. Uh, it is almost that the first re- resource that people go to um, is let's Let's see what we have in the medicine cabinet. And with the potent opiates that are being prescribed with such enormous frequency uh, in our culture today, and it's not just the United States, it is elsewhere as well, we also have that um, the fact that a lot of people are becoming uh, addicted through the medical use of a substance that they've been ordered for a legitimate purpose, but there are a lot of individuals getting into trouble, and a lot of them are our youth. We did not used to, and this really slapped me in the face when I was on another radio show a couple years ago, Mary. It was a pharmacist host that interviewed me, and he offhandedly remarked, and I thought he was over the top. I thought he was exaggerating. He said, yes, today we give... 30 Vicodin, we, were, we have a prescription for 30 Vicodin for a post-op tonsillectomy when a generation or two ago we used to send that kid home with a pint of ice cream. And I thought he was really exaggerating until within six weeks a friend of mine from out of state emailed me. Her daughter wasn't doing too well, and she thought it was the OxyContin she was prescribed for her tonsillectomy. And when we, when we have this type of back. When we have this type of backdrop, 
it really creates an added, you know, impetus for people to have a problem. It, it certainly does. And we'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you know the four major principles to healthy living? If we incorporate these principles in our everyday decisions, we could all live better and healthier lives. Tune in to The Joys of Healthy Living with your host, Dr. Ed Dodge. By tuning in each week, you can learn about the four principles for healthy living and how to incorporate them into your life. Dr. Dodge and his guest experts will share tips and discoveries from every aspect of health. The Joys of Healthy Living is broadcast live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. And our guest is Paula Davies. Semeca, who is a registered nurse and who has a master's degree in nursing from Adelphi University. Paula is a national expert on the subject of um, addiction and recovery in nurses. She is the author of Unbecoming a Nurse and From Unbecoming a Nurse to Overcoming Addiction. She also serves on the Board of Trustees for International Nurses Society on Addictions Foundation for Addiction Nursing. That's a mouthful. Um, uh, Thank you for joining us today. Before we went to break, we were kind of talking about some of the challenges of um, the nursing profession and the medical profession when it comes to addiction. And certainly, we, you know, the the availability of um, the access, uh, the ability to divert, um, the opportunity, I should say, for diversion of medication. and there's so much medication out there that it's, it certainly is, um, I don't know, a, a right field for, um, for people to get into trouble. Absolutely, absolutely. In, in fact, Mary, there was a, um, uh, some statistics that came out from the National Council of the State Boards of Nursing um, when they had really, you know, that's the organization of state boards of nursing. And interestingly enough, you know, although there are millions and millions of nurses, um, the, the fact is that by and large when disciplinary action is taken, quite a steep percentage of those disciplinary actions are related to 
directly, you know, they are directly categorized as drug or or another, um, you know, alcohol or another drug uh, related to those actual uh, cases that are reported as far as violations. Um, What do you think, you know, makes treatment for nurses um, different than treatment for other folks? I I don't know that the the actual addiction per se and the treatment is so different. Um, I I think the similarities that really need to be recognized is the fact that we have a brain. You know, just because we're a nurse or a doctor, a pilot, a car salesman, does not change the way that the brain um, interacts with drugs or alcohol. Uh, You know, we're human beings. We have the same anatomy and chemistry for the most part. I mean, there are certainly some, you know, little tiny differences, you know, between individuals. We are unique, you know, as far as our genetic makeup in in some respects. But biologically, the response that the brain has to mood-altering chemicals is pretty much the same regardless of what our training is or our jobs. Uh, The thing that's different with nurses is the fact that we have state by state, usually there is a statute on the books that says that we must be of fine moral character. We are expected not to habitually use alcohol or another drug. And it's very important and that that those statutes should be there. We want to make sure that caregivers are competent to take care uh, to the optimal level that they could possibly be. However, that said, um, you know, there is, the onus is on the professional who has a license to practice. License, licensure is really a privilege. Um, it's not a right to practice nursing. It's a privilege that you get training for and you get educated and you have, you know, you have to sit for boards to prove that you are capable of performing those tasks. Um, that said, though, there is that onus on that nurse if they are found to have a problem. Um, most states, I believe 41 out of 50 states at this point, there might be even higher than 41, do uh, have a monitoring program on the books that they will allow a nurse, a nurse to go in who has not harmed a patient. Usually that's a requirement uh, in order to get help and really be able to get their license back with restrictions eventually. Is that statute applicable to all uh, health care professionals or just nurses? It's, it's different. Every state, Mary, is, is very, very different in the way that they handle it. The statutes, actually, the requirements are different state to state. They're, it's not uniform as it is with airline pilots because every state has a different law. Uh, the states, you have the discretion because they are the, the licensing body that's giving out the license. Um, they have the ability to write their law. You know, once most states, it's become the, probably the standard now is about five years of monitoring. Uh, actually, five years supervision in practice uh, while they're being monitored uh, before they're allowed to, um, you know, gra- graduate, so to speak, the monitoring program. Um, every state is different, though. Some states, it's, uh, there's one or two states that have two years minimum requirement of supervised practice before 
the nurse has uh, satisfied the requirements of monitoring, but most states it's closer to five. And that's important because we understand that addiction is a chronic uh, progressive disease, but with treatment um, and, and with long-term care, long-term attention to a permanent condition such as addiction, uh, the individual can do quite well, um, and they usually do. Uh, when there is a monitoring program in place, they usually do quite well. You know, um, one of the things that comes to mind um, for me is that when somebody goes through treatment and they're in the process of recovery, you know, we're always encouraging people to look for triggers. And nurses have to go back into an environment where I would think that they would be triggered all the time, whether they're working, you know, in a high-stress situation or they um, have access to medications or they have, you know, um, I know, I'm hoping it's different, but, you know, nurses are sometimes uh, on the receiving end of a lot of harassment, whether it's from patients or, or physicians. So, um, you know, I, I would think that some of the aftercare should be highly specialized. Absolutely. It is, it is recommended, uh, if, if there is at all any possibility, Mary, for a nurse to get into a treatment track that is a health professional's track, it is highly recommended. Uh, the cues that you spoke about, that exposure to the cues that are associated with drug use, particularly if it was a nurse who diverted drugs at the workplace, uh, the cues are, are phenomenally huge, and the impact on that nurse, very su they're very subtle oftentimes. The nurse is not even aware of a cue, uh, and it, can, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a visual cue. Uh, it could be just um, the smell when, you, when a, a nurse rips open the alcohol swab, to give a patient an intramuscular injection. Uh, the smell of the alcohol swab sometimes is a cue for some. Uh, the cueing is a huge deal, and when there can be that specific specialized treatment that is really geared to looking at what those cues are and how to deal with them. Extinguishing cues is very difficult, but um, it, you know, it can be something that is at least addressed adequately that the nurse does go back to safe practice. Um, I think one of the things having, um, I'm the director of a, of a healthcare agency and we had a nurse who um, had told us that she was in recovery and was very open about it and then at three months later we found out that she was diverting medication and doing some very unethical things and and as a and as a nurse, I think I was the angriest person in the office because I felt so betrayed by that and you know i I just I think it's so hard for um, if people don't have the right aftercare to to be able to manage their recovery and their addiction yeah, and managing recovery is is a big deal uh, regardless of the where the person is coming from, whether they're a nurse, doctor, Indian chief, or whatever, um, it, the, what, the betrayal that you spoke of, Mary, is resonated with probably every individual who has worked alongside of a nurse who does have an issue with alcohol or another drug. 
the sense that uh, the the sense that they should know better. Um, I've heard, I've had a lot of nurses tell me that they've actually, and this is really another case in point for having the specialized treatment when you have, like, healthcare professionals in a group among themselves. Uh, I had a nurse tell me she's sitting across from uh, an individual who was in treatment for heroin, and um, she was in treatment because of her Vicodin and, you know, prescription opiate addiction, and he, when he found out she was a nurse in group, he said, how could you? You should have known better. And the fact of the matter is, it's not about knowledge. Knowledge does not offer us any uh, immunity or guarantee that we are not going to become addicted. Our brain is just as susceptible as anyone else's. And we'll be right back to talk with Paula more about addiction recovery and nurses after this commercial. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday. Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili, radio to thrive by. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. I am your host, Mary Woods, and our guest today is Paula Davies. Semeca, who is a registered nurse and has a master's degree in psychiatric and mental health nursing from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Um, she has been a nurse for over three years, and she has written two books that I highly recommend. One is called Unbecoming a Nurse and From Unbecoming a Nurse to Overcoming Addiction. She currently serves on the Board of Trustees for the International Nurses Society on Addictions, Foundation for Addiction Nursing. Um, welcome back, Paula. And before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about some of the cues that um, that I think nurses have to um, overcome just to be able to walk in the door of work. And, you know, there are other aspects to recovery as well. And 
What are some of the other things um, in a recovery program for a practicing nurse? I, one of the, and, and it's really where the monitoring programs get their name from, Mary, is the fact that the nurses, when they're in monitoring programs, are on the hook to be able to give a urine to be tested for alcohol and drugs or do a breathalyzer uh, whenever, on, basically on demand. And, you know, they'll be checked at, you know, at, at, a, at a random basis. The random meaning that there's an equal opportunity, opportunity any day of the week that they'll be told 8 o'clock in the morning you need to give, you know, a specimen today. And that really allows the nurse to really see the need to stay on the straight and narrow, to really be very vigilant about the, the aspects of their recovery that are really important, you know, getting enough rest, getting good nutrition, um, being able to develop uh, increased coping mechanisms, being able to self-soothe, being able to reduce stress, things like that. And do you have some examples, um, some stories of hope for, for our listeners? I, you know, I, I think it's really important for people to begin to see the panoramic view of addiction recovery. And to me, if, if someone's dealing with addiction, they need to see this as a continuous progressive recovery, just as the, the disease of addiction was something that totally morphed into something that was huge beyond what they could ever think it could become. Recovery has to become that, and it has to infiltrate every area of their life. Um, to, to that end, when, when I wrote the second book, I, you know, I got 29 nurses from 20 different states, most of whom I never met, you know, vast majority. I think maybe I had met one of them at a conference years prior. But all of them told their stories anonymously to me. We, it was cold of anything as far as where they're from, uh, who they worked for. Uh, but I was able to get two nurses' families, actually it was their husbands, to tell their story of long-term recovery because both of those nurses had died of cancer, totally unrelated to their addiction. And these nurses had 19 years and 35 years of recovery, and they died of a terminal illness in recovery. It, it needs to be presented as such to individuals who are seeking recovery that you can face anything in life in recovery and stay in recovery. I mean, the, the, the stories of recovery that we don't hear, that we have no mechanism for capturing, um, is such a great loss. We, we've lost that ability that we had, you know, hundreds of years ago that we would pass down stories, you know. It would become folklore. It would become legend. And some of these stories are so phenomenal. The one nurse um, had a problem with alcohol. Uh, her, husband was in her husband was a physician in treatment for alcohol. He's the one that told her story. And she was a, an administrator at the local hospital. He went away for treatment. Uh, they told her when she came to the family session that, uh, listen, your husband is not going to make it, and he is going to die if he does not go home to an alcohol-free home. And she went back home, and she tried desperately to stop drinking and found that she couldn't. 
and she went back to that treatment facility, and she fessed up, and she said, I am in trouble. They wanted her to go inpatient. Insurance would not allow this. Now, this was 20, 22 years ago or so, and the only place they would allow her to go to treatment was outpatient at the facility she was an administrator at. Oh, my goodness. What this nurse had to go through, but she never, ever reengaged in alcohol or drug use. I mean, this is a phenomenal story. You know, there's another story of a nurse who is still living who's coming up probably on 20, probably 20 years uh, clean and sober at this point. And she actually signed her two children, her two young sons, into foster care. She signed them over to the state, signed a document saying, I am a danger to my children because she knew that's what she needed to do to stay in a 15-and-a-half-month treatment program. She knew she needed long-term care. When she was in treatment, she found out she had HIV. She found out the week she graduated from treatment that her one son had HIV. And her first three years in recovery, Mary, she nursed this child as he died of AIDS. She's still in recovery today. She said that there was, there, there was no reason that she could pick up because it wasn't going to help anything. So what people, people need to see this, this hope that's there. You know, we hear all these tragic stories, and, we, and unfortunately we're also hearing the repeated reengagement in alcohol and drugs of celebrities that totally go down the tubes. And, it, and it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking when we hear of these celebrities who are extremely talented dying at such a young age of addiction. And unfortunately, there's no requirement for them to be in monitoring, like a nurse, like a doctor, like an airline pilot, when the boss finds out that you have a problem. And the, but the, the stories are out there, and we need to have more of them because if people don't see the recovery, Mary, they can't, have, they can't develop more hope that they're going to be able to handle it. How did you get so interested in writing the book? <laughs> you know, Mary, I was, in, I was responsible for three counties in New York uh, with the peer assistance program in New York. I was responsible for three counties. I would help advocate for the nurses to help them surrender their license to practice, help them engage in treatment, help them get themselves in a situation where they were stable enough in their recovery where they could go back to work. I interacted with their employers. I interacted with their treatment providers, as well as the state as far as the requirements they needed to meet to be, satisfy the monitoring program in New York. But increasingly, after five years, Mary, there were more and more nurses that were coming to me. Part of my job was to outreach to the nursing programs and educate them about this. They'd invite me to lecture for an hour. But what was happening was I was starting to get nurses that had only graduated a year or so before, and they were surrendering their license. And when they met me, they'd say, I remember when you, when you taught at my school, when you taught about this. And unfortunately, the younger nurses with only a year under their belt, two years of surrendering their license because they're getting in trouble with opiates. And that is a reason that I wrote the first book, because people need to be aware of this. I can't be everywhere doing a presentation, and there needs to be something that can be a resource for, for individuals who are considering nursing, for their families to understand the 
the lure of uh, potent, legal, legally prescribed pharmaceutical products. And then, but then I also needed to say, hey, people need to see more than the problem and need to see more than, because I offered some preemptive strategies to individuals not to succumb, but they also need to see that there is that recovery piece. And that is so, so pivotal to an enhanced outcome. What do you think um, some of the solutions are for this overprescribing of opiates? I think certainly um, we, I, I don't know that we can just think that we can educate and train medical professionals to be very, very selective regarding their prescription practices. I think the horse is so out of the barn at this point, Mary, that we need to really take it a, take it a step further and educate the public. Let the public see exactly um, how potent these medications are. Let them see that there, let them know that there are other alternatives than just popping a pill to get pain relief. Um, it, it really, I, I don't think any longer we can assume that just training medical professionals is sufficient because it, it, some of this is being driven by the patient who thinks that they need the prescription over rest, ice, compression, elevation, physical therapy, proper lifting techniques, et cetera. You know, it, it's a very complicated problem, and I think that um, certainly we have to inform consumers, but I think we also have to really monitor the, the prescribers of these medications because, you know, um, they have the ability to say no, and, and maybe they need to learn to say no, that it, just because somebody wants something doesn't mean it's the best medical care for them, and I and I. This is just me talking. I think sometimes the prescribers get uh, let off the hook a little too easily. Absolutely, that's the case. The, the prescribers need to be very discretionary with their prescribing practices, and yet we do have JCO, the Joint Commission of Hospital Accreditation, that's saying every patient must be asked about their pain every single shift while they're in the hospital. So there's a focus on pain that maybe is, fueling some of this. Well, you know, I think that's, that's a whole other kind of um, dynamic to this situation is that you've got, you've got an, a, this outside body dictating what is good care, and, and this body isn't on the floor. They're not seeing the patient. So um, we'll be right back with more conversation with Paula about recovery and nurses after this commercial. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Paula Davies. Mecca, who is a registered nurse and also has a master's degree in psychiatric and mental health nursing from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Paula has written um, two books, one, Unbecoming a Nurse, and From Unbecoming a Nurse to Overcoming Addiction. She currently serves on the Board of Trustees for the International Nurses Society and Addictions Foundation for Addiction Nursing. Paula, before we went to break, um, I guess I was talking about one of my pet peeves, which is... Um, how prescribers aren't regulated or monitored closely enough, and that when I see people with addictive disorders who come in with these um, brain diseases as a result of overprescribing of medication, you know, this is another area where I feel like, um, you know, we've kind of lost control of our profession. You had mentioned you know, the credentialing body, which is not on the floor, which is trying to monitor good progress but and, and standards. But I think that people are, it's like teaching so you can pass the test. It's not teaching so you get to learn the information. Yeah, it, it's really important that we have something that, that it, something in the way that we're caring for patients that makes long-term sense, that really takes into account the, the very real possibility that someone will develop a problem with a prescribed, particularly the opiates. The opiates and the sedatives are particularly problematic for individuals and often do lead to, um, you know, uh, an addiction disorder. Uh, fortunately, there is a lot more attention being paid to this area. Uh, some prescribers that are absolutely... Um, you know, really pill mill types of prescribers, they're just there to, to dole out pills, are being hit with um, not only fines but prison terms at this point. So I think we're, some, of, some of our direction we are moving a bit uh, closer to what would be helpful for the public. Well, I also think that um, when it comes to pain, sometimes pain we need to feel it so we can understand what's wrong and to just, kind of mindlessly think you're going to go through life without feeling pain doesn't doesn't make sense. And, you know, a media campaign that kind of also balances the message that there's a pill for every ache and pain, there's a pill to make you sleep, there's a pill to make you more sexually proficient, you know, that there are, you know, there are reasons 
and oftentimes good reasons why people have those discomforts. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's very very. Pain is not, in my opinion, a vital sign. The way it's being portrayed by uh, the Joint Commission. That's that's my own my own personal opinion. Uh, from what I've seen, pain is absolutely essential information for me to have regarding something that is not right and something that needs either some rest or some, you know, uh, maybe a different way of lifting. Uh, pain is there to give me information or, if it's really problematic, give my medical provider information that can keep me healthy. Exactly right. And the other um, thing about pain is that, um, you know, it's it's normal. I mean, yes. And, and I think that that whole concept is getting lost. You know, if somebody's in acute pain, there are also there are physical signs of acute pain. There's there's diaphoresis. There's um, tremulousness. There's, um, you know. Uh, the way somebody stands, the way they sit, the way they're they're curled up in bed, um, you know, there are physical signs. And I don't know that we're um, educating people on these are the physical signs of pain and discomfort. Right, right. And and those are very, very important. Um, you know, that is an important piece of the picture, that just because somebody's grimacing does not mean they need an opiate. Um, you know, it, it really... There needs to be an awful lot of discretion, and there is a movement even within the medical community. There's physicians for responsible opiate prescribing. I think on the internet, if you did a Google search, it would be PROP, P-R-O-P. Uh, you know, there are some physicians who are really getting into the mix here, trying to make sure that hey, understand that this might be a risk of addiction if you're going to have an opiate for you know X amount of weeks. Um, when my daughter went to get her wisdom teeth um, taken out, she went to interview two different dentists, and the first dentist gave her uh, a prescription for opiates before she even signed on to be his patient. Yeah. What? How? How unfortunate! How unfortunate! Yeah. Really? Because we know that that the the main source of um, you know of children and I and I and youth becoming um, initiated into. Uh, you know, prescription drug addiction is through getting a pill from a family member or a friend. And, or leaving, you know, and I think that's another thing that's important for people to remember that, you know, throw them out, you know, re, re, you know, get rid of them in a responsible manner. You don't have to keep them in your medicine cabinet just in case because right. they do get diverted. They do. They do. So, um, Paula, how can people, uh, if they want to read your, either one of your books, how would they go about obtaining your books? Both books are available on my website, as well as a lot of articles. There's a, an addiction recovery blog. Uh, if you went to www.unbecominganurse.org, uh, you could find both books. You can find some articles as well as uh, resource lists, uh, some other interesting uh, information. There's actually a tool that uh, people have the ability. I put, you know, the ability for them to copy a tool that can help them either avoid addiction in the first place or um, actually, if they're in recovery, make sure that they stay in recovery. 
um, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've had a, quite a bit of compliments from people about the website. And is that the best way for people to contact you? People can contact me at Paula at unbecominganurse.org, um, or if they went to the website, they could. Uh, there was a phone number there if they needed to call me, seven one eight two two seven one four six nine. Briefly, if you're if you're working with someone who a nurse that you may think has a problem, what are some signs to look for, and then how can you help them? The, I, I think the first thing that needs to be said to someone, if you think a nurse has a problem, do not confront the nurse one-on-one. -on -one. Make sure that it is hospitals that have been doing this a long time, make sure that it is a team confrontation, meaning there's more than one person. Uh, it's extremely important that it be uh, spit up the chain uh, don't just have yourself and another peer confront a colleague who's at your level. Uh, that is really, um, that generally backfires just the way it backfired when Betty Ford's daughter went to Betty Ford all by herself and said to Betty Ford, you have a problem, and Betty Ford promptly kicked the daughter out of the White House. <laughs> so we need to learn from that, that the one thing that, that absolutely under no circumstance should be done uh, in my estimation, is a one-on-one -on -one confrontation. It does not work. Uh, what to look for? There's a lot of things to look for. Looking for, um, you know, a nurse who you've known for a long time who's just not their self, you know, and there's no way that you can really explain it. You know, it isn't that they had the flu and they just came back to work, uh, you know, and you can understand they've been sick or something like that. You know, a nurse who has a disheveled appearance, who, who does have uh, pinpoint or dilated pupils, that's usually part of it. It's usually not one thing that you can associate with it. It's a constellation of symptoms, just like we look for in patients. It's not the one symptom that we see in a patient. It's the whole constellation, the whole picture of the patient that we look at. And it's the same with any nurse or doctor or anyone else who has a problem with addiction. Uh, they're usually self-isolating. They're, they're taking their life shrinkage and job shrinkage, meaning that their life is, becomes much, much smaller and focused around that addiction. Uh, the job tends to come down to medications. The, you know, the nurse who always wants to give out the meds, they, they wouldn't dare get, do a dressing change for, for your patient, but, boy, they'll give them all the Demerol or pills that they, you know, that the patient might need. Uh, someone who's being secretive, always hovering the med cart, always wants to go down to pharmacy to pick up the supply. Um, those, those are some of the things to watch for. If a nurse is listening and she wants help, what's the best way for a nurse to, to seek help? I think one of the things that is, um, it, it's starting to happen, and it's a really good thing. The best thing for, in many cases, for the nurse to do is if they know of a place that is, can render expert care to nurses, uh, they, should, they should seek out that place. Some nurses, if they have a problem on the job, are starting to report themselves to their employer. These are employers that have really presented a case 
to all their staff with the premise that this institution, and this is, this is a quote of what a director of nursing said before I presented at her facility. She said, we have a no-blame attitude at this facility. If any employee has a problem with alcohol or drugs, we will make sure they get the help they need, and when they're able to come back to work, we will help them come back to work. Now, mind you, it, now, mind you, that was just a one-time shot that they're able to, you know, get the help. It's not as if they can, you know, have a problem, you know, uh, get the help and then relapse. But um, that's a huge, huge thing. Um, you know, for a nurse to be able to report themselves, make sure they get into monitoring, because that ensures a better outcome. Um, thank you so much, Paula, for being our guest today. Um, this is a great topic, and um, I'm glad we were able to finally connect and, and do the show. So um, thank you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mary. Um, have a great week, everyone, and um, I hope you enjoy this nice summer weather that we're having everywhere. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.